Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about Talend. That's T-A-L-E-N-D. They're a leader in data integration and data integrity, and they're changing the way the world makes decisions. Talend supports the public sector with data integration, integrity, quality, and governance. So data is easily discoverable, understandable, and easy to use and shared in support of any mission, initiative, or goal. This unified approach is unique and essential to delivering complete, clean, and uncompromised data. Over 6,500 customers across the globe have chosen Talent to run their organizations on healthy data. So check them out at www.talent.com. That's www.talent.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Culture is the hidden piece of the work that needs to be done because I always say that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And really, if we're not focusing on creating that more customer-centric culture, then what's the point of all of this CX Mm -hmm. research that we're doing, right? Because that change is not going to stick. And so um, what we're really working on right now is uh, partnering with our Ochico, which is um, the HR within HUD to kind of figure out how can we enable employees and help them understand first, what is CX management? And then also what is human-centered design? Because they're related, but they're a little bit different. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. The divide between customer experience in public and private sectors is gaping. The highest performing private sector in the U.S. boasts an 8.3 out of 10 CSAT score. But for the U.S. federal government, this score sits at 4.5. And And this gap isn't consigned just to this country. In the U.S., U.K., Canada, France, and Germany, government is the worst performing sector. These stats alone mark the need for an overhaul of government service delivery from technology adoption to mission statement. That's the bad news. The good news is that governments can achieve this transformation with minimal disruption by adopting the right digital customer service software. Both B2B and B2C industries around the world are recognizing just how crucial it is to meet their customers' service expectations and are reaping the rewards of their investment. However, while the private sector continues to shower its customers with amazing customer service and CX, governments seem unable to keep up. In a recent survey, only 68% of citizens said they were happy with the service they recently received from government contact centers. When asked if the transaction took a reasonable time to resolve, only 62% agreed. The primary reason for these disappointing results is a reliance on traditional and now outdated support channels, particularly telephone. While phone support will always have its uses, There's a significant shift away from this channel across every age demographic. Just over 80% of people aged 10 to 41 admit they often experience anxiety when talking to someone on the phone. 
So how can governments begin to narrow the CX gap and deliver the support that today's public expects? Well, our guest today, Amber Chaudhry, who is a CX strategist at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, is going to join us to talk about this, as well as some of the challenges that she's facing across institutionalizing CX at her organization. Amber, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm excited to talk and get into it. This is such a great topic around customer experience. So I, I'm I'm so delighted to have you on the show today. But before we jump into some of that conversation, I, I mentioned you're the co-founder of Muslim Americans in Public Service. I absolutely love when a passion of yours, I would imagine just part of your identity, crosses into your professional life. Tell me a little bit about what catalyzed you to create this organization and what does it really mean to you? Yeah, I think it actually starts after 9-11, to be honest with you, just because uh, being a part of a faith group, I saw a lot of blowback within my community and also the South Asian community for a lot of assumptions about the way that they looked and the belief that they practiced and saw firsthand the impact that it had with my family and you know my dad getting pulled over just because he drove a car in uh, a nice area or something mm-hmm. like that. And I think that really impacted me to get into public service. And as a federal employee and who has been in spaces where I am usually the only person of color or even sometimes woman of color, um, I th- and some of the experiences that I have faced in federal agencies as well, I recognize that there is definitely a need to, one, develop um, Muslim Americans in public service, but also create a pipeline of talent to make sure that we are creating a more equitable and more just United States. And so that kind of was the impetus of Muslim Americans in public service. I, I think that's great. One of the things that I, I talk about a little bit on this podcast is around women in technology. Um, I, I, I generally say, I mean, it, it started when I had a daughter and I started thinking about things. I mean, and my wife talked to me a little bit. She's in the STEM field. She's a STEM uh, teacher. But having a daughter made it more intentional for me, right? And taking a look at at uh, female leaders like yourself and even female uh, minority leaders like yourself and some of the foundations that you're, you're building for her, um, my daughter, I think is fantastic in the next generation moving forward. So I think a, a program like this is so vital to um, Muslim Americans, especially female Muslim Americans as they're looking to get into public service because you want to be able to touch on um, all different diverse backgrounds as you're bringing talent into public service, because that's one of the biggest challenges that government faces anyway. So um, first of all, kudos for you in, in, in doing that. Do you have any advice before we jump into the, to the conversation? Any advice for uh, women in, the, in that type of group to, to as they're starting their careers out to kind of advance and move forward? Yeah, definitely. I think that I would tell people to find both mentors and champions. And there is a distinction, right? Mentors are people you can go to for advice on your career or maybe a workplace problem. Mm -hmm. But champions are really 
the ones who are opening doors for you, even when you're not in the room. And so my advice would be, you know, do those coffee chats, find your people, and especially find those champions who will open doors for you as well, especially uh, for women in technology. I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, so l- l- let's pivot over a little bit. I, I want to talk about, let's call it your day job um, at HUD. And like I mentioned in the opening, customer experience is something that is so top of mind, especially on the back end of the executive order release at the end of uh, 2021. What are some of the programs that you're working on at HUD right now around CX? Yeah, first and foremost, um, this is my third time working on standing up a CX program, and it gets a little bit easier every time. Uh, But I think right now, uh, a focus of mine is institutionalizing the CX program. And what's great is we have a lot of support within the agency, um, our our leadership with um, secretary and the deputy secretary, and then also um, this administration, like you said, is very supportive of customer experience. And so I'm looking forward um, to continuing conversations with the Hill to institutionalize customer experience for one, mm-hmm. um, because we're all very jealous of like the 100 plus FTE team that the VA has <laughs> and uh, would love to see um, HUD have a similar CX program. Um, and then uh, on uh, what is important for me is, you know, taking a very research first approach to our program, because as much as I would love to jump into a design project or a technology project, it's with full recognition that we need to start with research first. And uh, one of the projects that um, we're, we actually just transitioned from the research phase to the design phase is really taking a look at um, our housing discrimination complaint process. And what we discovered through that research process is that, you know, customers face complex challenges. And by the time someone files a complaint with um, HUD's FHEO program, they've often experienced some housing-related difficulty or trauma, whether it's being evicted, homelessness, unfair treatment, or even being denied a reasonable accommodation process. And so what we learned is that customers just want an advocate, right? And so um, this week, actually, we're just wrapping up our ideation sessions to help come up with solutions for that HUD might be able to take. And so I'm looking forward to my team helping prototype a solution uh, this coming fiscal year. What do those ideation sessions look like? Because I know one of the things that I've touched on before is how human-centered design is really coming into the forefront within government. And there, you mentioned research. I think it's kind of doing that due diligence on the front end instead of just throwing technology at the situation and trying to let it resolve itself. Um, so what, it, what do those ideation sessions look like and how, what type of information are they yielding for you and your team? Yeah, so I think it's always important to work with program offices and let them know that we're really trying to take a blue sky approach. And that's because it's hard to 
transition from, oh, well, the technology doesn't allow for that, or the policy doesn't allow for that, or we don't have the tools to enable employees to allow for that, right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to take a blue sky approach to these ideation sessions is very critical for us to at least get a full range of recommendations that HUD might be able to take. But at the end of those ideation sessions, we're, it's with full recognition that we do have limited resources. So trying to figure out, okay, which one of these recommendations would have, you know, the highest impact and is actually feasible. And so kind of culling the list down um, so that we can go back to leadership and say, hey, we think these might be, you know, high impact and actually feasible to, to tackle for, for this next fiscal year. And so Hopefully, we'll have some decisions soon on a prototype that we can work on together. You mentioned employees there. I think, obviously, employee experience is is a massive driver within customer experience. What are some of the ways you're enabling your employees during the during the build process of these these programs that you're rolling out? Yeah, I think that um, the way that you know, government CX programs typically work are, you know, we're kind of internal consultants to program offices. And at a certain point, you know, the CX team needs to extract itself from the process. And so for me, when I'm thinking about HUD trying to personalize experiences at scale while delivering empathy, I think that it's very important to bring programs and the people into that process so that when the CX team leaves, all of that good information that was heard during customer interviews and throughout the ideation process stays with them. So whether or not it's implemented in one year or five years, Mm -hmm. eventually um, those employees are empowered to make um good on those recommendations, but also recognizing that we need to empower employees um, themselves to to, to deliver on that end customer experience. And I always tell people that the number one, you know, factor in successful employee enablement is, you know, do they have the technology tools that they need to do their job properly? Um, So that's always front in mind and something that we communicate to program offices as well when they're deciding which recommendation to ultimately implement. So 100% agree. Technology is obviously vital to to them being able to support the, the CX process throughout, right? But how important then is is culture? Um, and it's a little bit of a rhetorical question because I know it's important, but I think maybe the better question is what are you doing at at HUD to try to enable uh, a more CX or, or more uh, citizen-focused or citizen-centered uh, culture for the employees? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that question because like culture is the hidden piece of the work that needs to be done because I always say that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And <laughs> I really, love that. Yeah. And really, if we're not focusing on creating that more customer-centric culture, then what's the point of all of this CX mm-hmm. research that we're doing, right? Because that change is not going to stick. And so um, what we're really working on right now is uh, partnering with our Ochico, which is um, the HR within HUD to kind of figure out how can we enable employees and help them understand 
first, what is CX management? And then also, what is human-centered design? Because they're related, but they're a little bit different. And Mm so um, just teaching hopefully leadership soon, how they can make data-driven decision-making using, you know, that customer data within their programs to help drive change. And we're really excited about the partnership that we about that we have and are about to kick off. I'm in the middle of a book right now, and it's it's called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, it's, it's a very popular book. I'm just, I'm behind. And one of the things that he talks about is when you establish your habits, the best way to go about making change is actually assuming the identity of what you're trying to become, which I think is is monumental, right? And just to simplify it, instead of saying, hey, I want to go to the gym to lose weight, you're saying, hey, I, I want to go to the gym because I want to be an athletic person. And then you start making decisions around that. And Generally, I listen to these books and I'm I'm thinking it through the lens of myself, but I started listening to it and I started thinking about it through the lens of what an organization might embody, right? So you think about identity and if you're constantly asking yourself the question, what would an organization decide to do in this moment that has put the citizen at the center of it and has made CX a priority, what would they decide to do? In this moment, do you think that's something kind of the assumption of identity? Do you think that's something that is feasible within government right now? Or do you think that's something that could be kind of a way off in the future type of situation? Man, that is such a great question and kind of reminds me of fake it till you make it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do think in government, it's a little bit harder because, you know, this is my third time doing things and each time the culture is a little bit differently. And so the approach needs to be a little bit differently. And with CX teams, because it's everybody's responsibility to improve the customer experience, not necessarily just the CX team, I I think they're definitely needs to be that focus on culture and like teaching people to assume that customer centric mind shift. But I think it's really hard for bureaucratic organizations to do that just because we're so used to doing things the way that we've done them for the past 20, 30 years. And so I don't, I'm not sure if I have, you know, figured that piece out completely, but I do recognize that there needs to be a focus on culture change in order to make um, the CX program work ultimately and get institutionalized. 100%. Um, what, a word you you mentioned earlier in one of your answers was empathy. And I think that's so important. I, I think you'd agree in any type of CX program you're rolling out. But I want to throw a question at you that I actually get fairly often when I'm speaking or, or on panels. How do you drive empathy through technology? And generally, the answer that I give, it starts with outcomes, right? Think, think of things like time and, and time tax was a, was a big yield from the executive order last December. But I look at it and say, if I'm going to the DMV and I'm going to go through this process, uh, or if I'm filing my taxes or whatever the experience is, I just don't want my time wasted. Is that ultimately outcomes? Is that what you think 
technology driving empathy looks like, or are there other situations that you think there's the possibility to do that? You know, that is a great question that I actually have been thinking of myself recently, just because um, we've seen, you know, the past two administrations be very supportive about customer experience and just looking forward, figuring out how we can make the case to you know, have customer experience live beyond, you know, these two administrations. And something that I've been thinking about is, you know, explaining the ROI. And, you know, I think it just depends on who you're dealing with, if it's, you know, that financial benefit to customer experience, or if it's that, um, that emotional piece, which is ultimately trust in federal government, which we know is, you know, very low right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think probably needs to be a little bit of both of that emotional piece of, you know, increasing trust in federal government, but then also being able to, to quantify that ROI as well. So um, I think those are both some outcomes that, that we're going to have to need to be able to prove in order to make sure that this CX work gets institutionalized. Um, beyond any administration. I'm glad you brought up trusting government because a lot of the the work and research I've been doing um, with my role at Genesis has been around taking a look at what the citizen life cycle looks like across generalized experiences compared to like awareness and decision making and finally into what loyalty looks like. And I, I think a lot about impetus, right? You have so many private sector organizations like like Amazon and others, especially retail focused, where loyalty is very easy, right? At Amazon, it's, hey, do you come back and you continue to shop here? And are you subscribed into the programs and you just have uh, recurring purchases, et cetera? But with government, it's a little bit more challenging, obviously, because we as citizens really don't have a choice who we go to. When we file our taxes, it's the IRS. And if we are renewing our driver's license, it's our state DMV, and we have to do it. There's no there's no um, question if, if we have to do it. But you touched on trust, and I, I look at that, and I know we've seen research around civic trust and civic participation increasing when there are better CX programs out there, right? Better engagement with, with government and, and citizen, more transparency, et cetera. When you think of impetus, what are some of the things that that cross your mind when you go through that thought process? One of the first things that I worked on coming into HUD was trying to figure out RCX measurement architecture. And so here at HUD, our measures will be both customer satisfaction and trust in the department as a whole. And so one of our learning agenda questions will be taking a look at which CX drivers ultimately have an impact on both satisfaction and trust. But we're really in the beginning stages of trying to even procure a VOC platform. And so I'm really looking forward to, one, having a platform so that we can start measuring both satisfaction and trust, but then also figuring out which drivers are the ones that impact those two um, beacon metrics for HUD. You mentioned that you've done this in in a couple other organizations. Is this similar 
type of approach that you've taken in those organizations? Yeah, definitely. And so when we look at technology, um, obviously there's the research that goes into it and the strategy building it out, and then you can layer in the technology. Um, and, and I heard somebody say that kind of finally technology is at a place where it can meet, we can finally meet expectations, right? Customers, citizens, et cetera. How much has cloud technology really enabled what type of strategies you're looking to deploy at these various agencies as, as you've progressed through your career? Yeah, so um, I started my um, CX work at the Small Business Administration, and it's not a secret that SBA had a slow start to its pandemic programs during the height of the pandemic. And what we really saw was business processes and systems fail under the load of millions of small business sure. flocking to SBA for help. It's not easy to be in that role when you have the eyes of the entire <laughs> almost world on you, right? <laughs> exactly. And we were, you know, we used to joke that we were America's best kept secret. So it was it was a lot <laughs> Until at once. you weren't. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, the only um, system that didn't fail was um, OCIOs where I was working, which was SBA.gov. So I kind of got a front and center look of um, the of the usefulness of cloud-based technologies. And one of the things that um, I witnessed was, you know, one of the business processes to answering small businesses was, you know, managers set up a team email inbox and what they would do is download, you know, a customer inquiry, put it into a folder and then assign it to one of their staff members. This was all without a CRM. And so it was, I was really lucky enough to help lead an enterprise CRM project to get kind of built some of those processes into, um, into a cloud-based CRM. And really the purpose of that CRM was one, how do we create that 360 view of a customer that is not just a program silo, but connecting the pieces of what a journey looks like for a small business across the SBA. And the reason for that was, you know, CX teams really want to shift away from proactive help to being proactive about pushing customers throughout their journey. And so to give you an example of what we were trying to accomplish was, you know, let's say that, you know, a woman-owned small business was able to get, you know, a 7A loan 15 years ago. And then that, that business was, you know, in Tampa and it got flooded because of a hurricane. That meant that, you know, what we were trying to do is shift SBA to send out a proactive email to say, hey, we know that you, you've you engaged with us before and there was a hurricane in this specific zip code. You might be interested in our economic injury, injury disaster loan program. Mm -hmm. Here's some information so that you know that this program exists, right? And so I can only hope that here at HUD and any other agency that I'm at will take a similar approach to enterprise CRMs, but also just shepherding um, 
customers and putting signposts along the way to help them through their customer journeys. Yeah, I mean, it, not only just their their customer journeys, because I, I 100% agree with you, and this is right in line with a lot of the, the research and work I'm doing right now, but driving citizens and agencies towards anticipatory services. So if you're, I mean, let's use your example. If you're in Tampa, Florida, and you own a business and you're coming into hurricane season, anticipate that and be able to provide them the resources to say, if disaster strikes, let's not, let's not wait until it strikes. Here are all the, all the, the things that you need in that moment of peril to submit so that you can get assistance and support, right? Let's hope it doesn't happen, but let's also be prepared. And I think that's, to me, that's kind of the North star when you can get to complimentary and anticipatory services for the citizens. Exactly. And I, I think back to trust, I think that would definitely help improve 100%. trust in federal government as well. 100%. If we can switch to that proactive nature. Yeah. If you feel like your government's looking out for you and they, and not only looking out for you, but it's that your government understands you and knows you when, when I'm, when I'm speaking, one of the, it's a, it's a commercial example, but one of the things that I talk about is back in January, I ordered flowers for my wife and they didn't show up. And I called 1-800-Flowers. And as soon as, as soon as, um, the, the auto pickup, um, and the machine answered, it, recognized my phone number. It told me it, it recognized the order. It, it asked what the challenge was and it asked what, what they wanted me to, uh, what, did, what type of expectation I had around it. Did I want it reordered or did I want a refund? And I felt, even though it was a machine, we talked about earlier technology driving empathy, even though it was a machine, I still felt heard and I was still able to execute on what I wanted and it saved me time. I think that's, that to me is ultimately what, what we're trying to get to in the government space. And if you can understand the citizen individually and you provide personalized anticipatory services for them, which isn't that difficult right now with technology, again, that's that's the North Star. I love that example. And also I love that you mentioned that there needs to be some aspect of humanizing technology. Cause at the end of the day, you know, Nobody wants to feel like they're talking to a robot, right? But mm -hmm. building in that empathy through that technology process, that that's a great example. One of the th one of the things is I've been kind of going through this, we're we're doing a lot of work on figuring out the best way to to get to a point where all systems are like this, right? I feel like interoperability plays a huge part because there's so many systems. If you if we use my example again, there was a system that had to one recognize my phone number tie that phone number to an order and then also list the number of challenges that could have come up with that order. So all those systems had to come together. And then once I selected something, had to then trigger a response. That is all integration. So are, are there other aspects beyond that that you think really can drive that? Or do you think that's the key that we should be focusing on right now? I definitely think that's key because what I'm seeing across the OMB life experience work that is going on is really this recognition about the role that data can play in interoperability of systems across federal agencies, right? Sure. And so it would be it's it's definitely front in mind to figure out how to utilize data, but then also how to protect data and make sure that 
we're thinking about privacy concerns and data concerns as we lead into the next phase of life experience work, which would be actually building the solutions that came out of the research um, that just wrapped recently. So you have a really easy job, it sounds like. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> No, I, I I can totally appreciate that, especially since we're we're knee deep in kind of figuring this stuff out. Um, I, I can respect the fact this how mainstream it is, uh, how much you guys must be working through a lot of this stuff, and especially on the back end of a pandemic. Tell me a little bit. You were so you like you mentioned you were at SBA during this again another high profile agency during that period of time. But what are some lessons that you took away? as you had to navigate the pandemic and provide top tier customer experience to the citizens of the United States, what type of lessons uh, did you bring out of that? Yeah, so at SBA, it wasn't just one pandemic program or silo, it was multiple. And what was interesting was that, you know, if the administrator asked, and she did, you know, what holistically are customers saying, nobody could really answer that in the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, we did have a voice of the customer survey on our website, but we got inundated with, tell me about the status of our our loan. Here is my name, my number, please contact me for help. And so thinking about the voice of the customer as just surveys is a missed opportunity. And what I learned immediately is that the voice of the customer comes in in a variety of ways. It comes in through email. It comes in through phones and call centers, through our field offices, through social media, um, and making sure that you're able to grab all of that data and have it in a single place because as technology people, you know, we do not like data silos. Yeah. So having that data in wall in one place and being able to have real time feedback on that voice of the customer pulse is really, really important. And so all that data, I mean, everything you just described for the most part is unstructured data. So how do you go about processing that and coming up with patterns and ways to support these people. I mean, that's incredibly challenging. It was incredibly challenging. And so um, one way is to, you know, procure a voice of the customer platform, which um, will help connect all of that data. But then ultimately, you're you're able to use natural language processing, which Mm -hmm. uses AI and machine learning to kind of bubble up you know, what is actually going on in real time with our customers. And at SBA, that's kind of what we did. We pulled in that data through that enterprise CRM that I was talking about. But in the absence of a VOC platform, what we did is partnered with the chief data officer, uh, created in our program, brand the data. And what we realized was, you know, customers just wanted to know the status of their loans. And so what I was able to do was cost out, okay, this is how much we're paying in our call centers to answer these sort of questions. And I took that data to our CIO at the time and uh, recommended that we build a customer self-service portal, which was ultimately my SBA.gov 
And um, now SBA is building on that capability to have that customer self-service portal so that customers can get that sort of data. So this challenge I'm going to, or this question I'm going to ask you is, is a little bit challenging, but really out of curiosity, especially with your background within CX and, and EX with all the technology that's available and, and all the conversations that are being had around improving experience, at least within government, why haven't we seen a more dramatic or meaningful change within this space? I think the reason for that is because customer experience teams are still working on getting institutionalized. And a lot of the times that these teams are really just one person teams. And up until recently, I was a one woman show, to be honest with you. And I was supplemented, luckily, with um, contract support. But sometimes CX teams don't even have that, right? And so I also think that CX teams run into trouble when it comes to doing the research where everyone is really excited about the research and the potential solutions. But being able to transition from research to implementation is the hard part. Sure. And and luckily here at HUD, uh, my executive is actually um, over both strategic planning and customer experience which really, really helps me out because at the end of the research, what I can do is pull out some of the recommendations, throw them over to my sister team, the strategic planning team, and make sure that those are included in the annual performance plans and strategic planning documents so that program offices are responsible for institutionalizing or making good on implementing some of those um, proposed solutions that came out of the CX research. And so I'm really happy about the placement of the CX team within HUD. And um, I know that's a question that I always get is, you know, where should we place our CX teams? The model at HUD really works because of that, um, that cross between strategic planning and customer experience. So I want to give you some time to, to leave any final thoughts with the audience that you have. But before I do that, I have one last question. Um, what, and you mentioned contractor support, if, if you're speaking to private sector entities right now, what are some ways that they can support you and what you're doing or, or even support CX programs across government? What would your recommendation be based on some of the challenges that you've spoken about today and things that you see and opportunities that you see for programs moving forward? I would say start at phase zero. (laughs) Because, and I say that because I have a lot of vendors coming to me with fancy technology and coming with me about, oh, we can use this here or here or here. But really what I'm focused on is a research first approach. So having vendors support, you know, building out research and then building out CX teams to include, you know, helping departments and agencies shift to a more customer-centric culture is really kind of that phase zero that needs to happen first before we can jump to designing and the fancy 
fancy technology as much as I would love and recognize the impact um, that designing um, and technology can have. I know that I can't do that without doing that first part, which is research and understanding what those current customer journeys look like. And I think a lot of vendors need to understand that that's where government is in its CX process today. Makes total sense. Amber, again, uh, any final thoughts that you want to leave with the listeners today? I was just thinking about, you know, you mentioned your daughter and women in STEM. And one final thought I want to just add is ultimately your career is in your own hands. And I say that because I know a lot of people who stick around their jobs because they were promised a promotion or a position that was never materialized. And then they get upset at their leadership for not making it happen. But at the end of the day, you know, your career is in your own hands. And so I would just encourage people to to recognize that and not rely on anyone else when it comes to their careers. I think that's really good advice. Amber, thank you again for, for coming on and talking about this topic, which I know has a lot of interest from a lot of people right now and, and the work that you're doing and you've been doing across government is, is fantastic. So thanks for leading the way. Thank you. Appreciate you, Brian. And nice talking to you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.